Hey, good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're having a great, I hope you had a great weekend. And, uh, you know, I know I did. Got to have dinner with some friends and get to go do some Christmas light photos and stuff. And it's, it's been pretty fun this weekend. Anyway, uh, today's Sunday. So obviously today is Sunday reading day, day eight. And let me open up my book here. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. And that means we can help you with any paranormal needs that you have. Um, we also have affiliates in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii, if you need help out in those areas. Today, of course, is Sunday, so that means I'm going to be reading from a paranormal-themed book. And uh, we've been reading through, and I'm hoping my tablet comes up because it's old. We've been reading through a book by Sylvia Schultz. And uh, it's 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 some dark stuff. Um but also some light stuff. And it's all about Christmas, different things that happen during Christmas and the holiday season and the winter. So that's what we're doing today. And, you know, you don't have to watch me read. You can always just kind of uh, go grab some dinner or something and sit back and relax a little bit and uh, just listen in. Okay. So uh, let me get started here. And uh, last Sunday uh, were some grim stories, but there were also ghost stories and that was kind of fun last Sunday so I'll read for about an hour today and uh, then I'll let you guys go but I think if, if you enjoy hearing stories this is the way to do it if you're watching from Facebook um, and you haven't done so already please hit hit and, and you like what you you, you hear uh, please hit that like and follow that, that, that like and follow button if you're watching from YouTube down this bottom right hand over here at the bottom right hand right hand corner you can click on that little ghost, and then it'll subscribe you to our channel. We have 450 videos sitting over there. And, uh, yeah, and uh, it's something for everybody. But every Sunday, we like to read from a paranormal-themed book. So uh, let's do it, and uh, let's get started. The Doug Hill Booger. I hope it's Booger. It says Booger. <laughs> every state in the Union, let me get adjusted here. Every state in the Union can lay claim to its own treasure trove of ghost stories, but Illinois seems to have more than its share of terrifying tales. Of course, you can't swing a dead cat in Chicago and the suburbs without smacking a ghost. But the southern tip of Illinois, the area known as Little Egypt, is also rich in ghost lore. In contrast to the urban bustle of Chicago and the suburbs in the northern part of the state, southern Illinois is quiet. Some would almost say comatose. Southern Illinois is a region that has more in common with its Kentucky and Tennessee neighbors to the south than its big sister Chicago in the north. Southern Illinois is a place of mystery and tall tales. Take Doug Hill, for example. This is a spot about five miles west of Jonesboro on State Highway 126. The road here was cut through the bedrock of this part of the state to make an easier passage from the Mississippi River to the interior of Southern Illinois. Doug Hill Road is a secluded spot, dark and spooky. It's not quite so terrifying nowadays in the era of Netflix and McDonald's and Facebook, but this area was once considered one of the most dangerous and most haunted places in southern Illinois. Reports of ambush, robbery, and violence were common, but there was a supernatural element to Doug Hill's reputation as well. Legend says that it was haunted because of an incident that took place during the waning days of the Civil War. In April 1865, a provost marshal named Welch was working the area. One day he arrested three deserters from the Union Army 
and turned them into the authorities in Georgetown and in, in, I'm sorry, Jonesboro. He was doing his duty, but word came a few days later that General Lee had surrendered at, at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. The war had ended, so the deserters were released. But the men were still seething over being arrested. They wanted revenge on Provost Marshal Welch. Late that night, Welch was riding home, passing through, passing through Doug Hill on his way. The deserters had set up an ambush along the road cut. They shot Welch down in cold blood and left his body lying in the road. Even though the body was discovered after only a short time, no one was ever arrested for the murder. Perhaps because the murderers weren't punished by an earthly court, Welch's ghost soon began to appear on the Doug Hill Road, searching for its own brand of justice. Some people saw the ghost walking along the road, dressed in bloody clothes, begging for help from passing wagon drivers. Most often, though, the ghost just appeared as a figure lying in the middle of the road where Welch's earthly body had fallen. Troy Taylor writes of the Doug Hill ghost in his book, The Big Book of Illinois Ghost Stories. According to one account, a wagon driver was passing along Doug Hill Road one evening when he saw the body of a man lying face down in the center of the road. He stopped his horses and climbed down to see if he could help. When he leaned down to try to turn the man over, his hands passed right through him. The teamster tried again to lift the body, and again he only touched the dirt beneath it. Terrified, he ran back to his wagon. Cracking the whip, he drove the wagon forward and felt the distinct thump of the wheels passing over the spectral corpse. He looked back once and saw that the body had vanished. The unfortunate Welch was not the only spook that lurked on, uh, on Doug Hill. A spectral wagon also terrorized that stretch of road. One night in late December, a farmer named Bill Smith was driving along the road after dark. The ground was frozen hard, and the muddy ruts were, were chunks of iron in the path. Any wagon driver at a speed faster than a horse would walk, could walk. Okay, I'm sorry. Any wagon driver at, at a speed faster than a horse could walk would rattle and shake as it jounced over the frozen ground. The balancing of Smith's wagon worked the yoke loose on his horse's shoulders, so he had to stop to tighten it. Smith brought the wagon to a stop and climbed down from his seat to replace the horse's yoke. He blew on his cold fingers as he worked the stiff leather. He heard the rumble of another wagon approaching, and it was coming fast, much too fast on a dark road with woods on both sides. There was little room on the narrow trail to pass. Smith knew that if he couldn't get out of the other driver's way, or at least warn him that he was stopped in the middle of the road, they both end up killed. Smith shouted a warning into the darkness as loud as he could, but the thunder of the runaway trap wagon filled the air, and it seemed impossible that the other driver could even hear him. Smith suddenly realized that the unearthly racket was much closer to him, filling his ears with the pounding of horses' hooves and the clatter of a wooden wagon about to shake itself to splinters. Smith saw a pair of huge black horses snorting foam as they thundered along the road, pulling a wagon with its sideboards rattling with the stress of the ride. The driver sat on the box, cracking the whip and urging the horses on with slaps of the reins. But Smith couldn't see his face in the darkness. The wagon crested the hill, heading straight for Smith, and then it kept arcing up on that trajectory, sailing right through the air above Smith's head. The horses were running and the wheels were turning, as if the wagon was traveling on solid ground rather than thin air. The wagon gained the road again at the crest of the next hill. 
It had barreled over the dip in the road as if it was flat ground. Smith rose from where he crouched in terror and soothed this panic horse. He stared down the road as he thumped the horse's shoulder in stunned amazement. He couldn't see the phantom wagon anymore, but he could still hear it, and the monstrous thing was two miles away at that point. Smith decided it would be a long, long time before he traveled the Dug Hill Road after dark again. The Old Royal Ascot Hotel. It's unfortunate, but sometimes beautiful old buildings are demolished in the name of progress. Such was the case of the Old Royal Ascot Hotel in England. The hotel stood near a racetrack in Berkshire, west of London. Guests of the high-class establishment were treated with white-glove respect. The livery service from the train station to the hotel was, was an immaculate coach and a pair. Gentlemen in stylish coats and ladies in dresses and hats of the very latest fashion poured over raceless in the elegant hotel lobby where enjoyed delicacies in the dining room. But all good things come to an end, and the old Royal Ascot Hotel was put up for auction in the spring of 1964. By the end of the year, the once grand hotel was slated for destruction. Demolition men moved into the building to prepare it for its date with the wrecking ball. The workers arranged temporary sleeping quarters in some of the 40 rooms of the hotel, but they hadn't been there long when some of the men began to mutter about strange goings-on in the aging building. Shortly after Christmas, the old night watchman quit in a hurry. He walked off the job one night without even stopping to collect the two or three days' pay owed to, owed to him. When his supervisor finally got in contact with him, the old man swore he had heard ghostly footsteps in the hotel's hallways. But that wasn't why he had left so abruptly. It was the sight of a ghostly horse whinnying and stamping late at night in one of the hotel room doorways that proved too much for the watchman's nerves. After the night watchman walked off the job, other workmen began to come forward with their own experiences. According to witnesses, the phantom horse was ghostly pale, either white or gray. The men spoke of hearing the spectral horse stamping and snorting in the empty corridors of the derelict hotel. One worker, Thomas Murphy, claimed he'd seen the phantom horse standing under an arch in the hotel. Another man, Pat Bradshaw, had taken over the night watchman's job. He heard the eerie snorts of an invisible horse, which he said made his hair stand on end. Eventually, only six men of the crew were left that were willing to sleep in the hotel. The others were just too spooked. It, was only, it wasn't only the ghost horse that had the men leaving in droves. One night, as the men came back to the hotel after the day's work, they found themselves unable to open the door, a door which had been left open only minutes before. Older residents, older residents had a theory for the ghost horse's origin. When the old Royal Ascot Hotel was being built, horses were used to drag sledges slowly with bricks from the kilns to the building site. One of the horses had collapsed from overwork, and sadly, it had to be put down. Maybe the old time maybe the old timers theorized, after working so hard to help put up the hotel, the horse had returned to haunt the men who were now pulling it down. A few days this is the aircraft carrier glory. A few days after Christmas, nineteen fifty five, a Mr. Harry Meyerhall Meyerthal was working as a painter at Roslyn Dockyard in Fife, Scotland. Early that morning, he showed up to work on the aircraft carrier Glory, which was in the dockyard for renovation. 
Meyerthal had an er early breakfast in the dining hall, then went aboard the ship. He kept his work clothes in the cabin eight on the galley deck, so that was where he headed first. Outside the cabin was a locker where he kept a lamp needed for work. This was a double lamp that could light both the cabin and the corridor, so it had a thick electrical cord attached to it. Meyerthal opened the door to, the ca to cabin eight and stepped inside to plug in the cable. When Meyerthal switched on the light, he saw a man standing near the door of the cabin by the dressing table. The man was quite tall, about five feet nine inches, and he was dressed in flying gear suitable for tropic conditions, blue shorts and a leather flying jacket with a fur collar, the jacket hanging open. On the right-hand side of the jacket, a row of small bombs was painted in red, and a pair of pilot's wings were pinned on the left, on the left-hand side. The man wore a flying helmet pushed up on the back of his head, with a shock, with a shock of blonde hair sticking out from under the front of the helmet. On the right side of the man's neck was a long red puckered scar. Meyerthal stared at the man for a moment before realizing he was probably one of the maintenance staff, part of a skeleton crew stationed aboard the carrier while it was docked for repairs. Meyerthal said, Good morning. Did you enjoy your Christmas? But the man made no reply to the cheerful greeting. Meyerthal shrugged and stepped out of the cabin to get a leather jacket from, from his work locker. Suddenly, he stopped, frowning. What was the man doing in cabin eight, dressed in full flight gear, so early in the morning? He poked his head back into the cabin to ask the aviator who he was. The room was empty. Meyerthal grabbed the double lamp and flooded the cabin with light. There was only a bunk bed, the dressing table, and a small locker which was closed. There was no sign of the aviator. Meyerthal dropped the lamp and tore it tore down the hallway, shrieking. A workmate stopped him in his headlong flight down the stairs. He claimed Meyerthal, he called Meyerthal down, and together they went back to investigate the cabin. They found no one in the room. When the naval commander came aboard, both men told him about the strange apparition. The officer, too, searched the cabin in the corridor. He found no sign of the flyer with the scarred neck. This was just too much for Meyerthal. He slumped into a chair in a state of shock and had to be escorted off the ship. Rumors spread, and soon the story was making the rounds of the dockyard. Workmen said the Phantom was the ghost of an officer who was killed in a crash landing on the deck of the Glory after returning from a flight over Korea shortly before Christmas during the Korean War. The spectral airman had appeared before the stories had appeared before the stories insisted. The ghost always showed up in cabin eight, his old quarters, just after Christmas. There was, however, a flaw in this spook story. It's true that twenty-five men of the, the twenty-five of the men serving aboard the Glory had lost lives in combat, but none of them had died as a result of crash landing on the aircraft carrier's deck. Furthermore, no RAF officer had ever served on that particular ship, so the identity of the scarred ghost of the Glory was a complete mystery. And so it remains. Number 149 Squadron. Late 1939, in the early days of the air war in World War II, was a time of uncertainty for the Royal Air Force. The German Luftwaffe was strong and aggressive, striking fear into the hearts of civilians on the ground and causing tension in the ranks of the RAF. The RAF hadn't yet built up its strength in either pilots or aircraft. 
Much of the air fighting in 1939 consisted of attacks limited uh, of attacks of limited strength and effectiveness, as the RAF tested itself against the Luftwaffe. Those feints and jabs were still lethal, though. Many planes were lost, and many pilots died as the RAF struggled to find its footing in the skies. One of the main forces of the time operated out of Mindenhall Base in Suffolk, England. Pilots of number 149 Squadron flew Vickers Wellington bombers. Unfortunately, Wellingtons were huge, bulky monsters without much firepower. The British were still sending their bombers out in daylight, and the German fighter planes were tearing them apart. There were very few British fighters available to provide escort for the vulnerable bombers. Radio silence was of paramount importance. So when the bombers left, the ground crew at, Mil at Mildenhall had nothing to do but wait until the planes returned, or failed to return. The missions were timed so that the Wellingtons took off in daylight, made their bombing runs, then ran for home as darkness fell. On December 18th, 1939, Coming up on the shortest day of the year, there wasn't much daylight to work with. To guide the bombers to safety, their ground crews lined the runway with cans of paraffin placed in parallel lines, giving the pilots a place to aim. When the bomber was close enough to begin its descent, the ground crews lit a chance light which eliminated the runway with a bright yellow beam. Nine Vickers Wellingtons had taken off from Mindenhall earlier that day. Two of them developed mechanical failures and limped home without having had the chance to drop their payload. The seven bombers still out were flying in wretched conditions. There was heavy cloud cover, snow had begun to fall, and the temperature dropped to well below freezing. One plane straggled in just past 5 p.m., followed by two more. That left four bombers unaccounted for in the growing winter darkness. The snow came down more heavily as the clock ticked. The late afternoon gloom faded to full night. The bombers were now more than an hour overdue. The ground crew set up the paraffin flares and the chance light, even though they had sinking feeling the planes roll down. The men watched nervously, stamping booted feet and blowing on cold fingers. Half an hour passed. Then an officer lifted his head, listening hard. A sound was approaching in the hush of the falling snow. The other men perked up. A plane was definitely on its way to Mindenhall. But something was wrong. Instead of the smooth drone of a Viker's two, po of, of Viker's two powerful engines, they heard a choppy, choking cough. The bomber was in serious distress. The mechanics on the ground were men who knew their engines. They could tell immediately that the plane struggling towards them wasn't a Wellington. Light up the flares, the ops officer shouted. Pale light flickered down the runway from the paraffin flares, and the chance light added its yellow glow. The men on the ground stood frozen in their tracks, their eyes wide with stunned disbelief. The plane coming towards them, lit by, a weak, lit by the weak glow of the flares, was an ancient, fragile contraption. Frayed fabric flapped, taut wires hummed in the cold wind, and two rotted bicycle tires spun on the plane's undercarriage. Tattered canvas surrounded the open cockpit of an FE-2 from the early days of World War I. The stunned crew stared at the pilot. In the glow of the lights, they could clearly see the scarf, goggles, and helmet of a World War I flying ace. The pilot thrust a gloved hand over the side of the cockpit and dropped something. An object plinked onto the tarmac, rolled a few times, and was still. Then the pilot pushed the ancient relic to full power and buzzed out of range of the runway lights. 
An airman, an airman ran over to the object the pilot had dropped and picked it up, turning it over in his hands. It was a wrench with a piece of paper wrapped around it. The mechanic, the mechanic unwrapped the paper, and the men crowded around to read the handwriting. Wellington Air, Aircraft, N2961, was down. Not shot down over the continent, where the crew would have had a chance to escape or be taken prisoner. The pilot had coaxed the Vikers bomber as far as he could, trying to get back to Mildenhall. But the, but the valiant plane had lost its struggle over water. The bomber had gone down into the sea, 40 miles from the nearest air-sea rescue outfit. The plane and everyone on board was lost. So why did a relic of a bygone age appear in the skies over Mildenhall to deliver the tragic news? In the Second World War, number 149 Squadron flew Vikers Wellingtons out of Mildenhall. In a generation before, British pilots pioneered the air war, flying from airfields in France. Number 149 Squadron flying in the First World War flew FE-2 biplanes. Back already? In the wide body of paranormal writings, there's a very specific type of ghost sighting called a crisis apparition. In this situation, the witness sees a friend or a loved one who appears to be present in the room, but who could, could, who could not possibly be there. Because at that very moment, they had just died or were dying. A theory for this unnerving event is that when someone is going through extreme physical or emotional trauma, as at the point of death, they are somehow able to send a telepathic message to someone with whom they have a strong bond. Crisis apparitions are fascinating, but sometimes they are hard to verify. Many times the witness who experiences the crisis apparition is alone or tells someone about their sighting after the fact. There is a famous report, though, that disproves that rule. British RAF pilot David McConnell appeared to his roommate at the exact moment he, McConnell, was dying. But not only did the roommate not realize McConnell was a ghost, he told several people about seeing McConnell well before he got the news of the plane crash that killed his friend. On December 7, 1918, McConnell had orders to fly his plane from, from, the, from the Scampton base in Lincolnshire to the base at Tadcaster. He left at 11.30 that morning, telling his roommate, Lieutenant Larkin, that he planned to take the train back and return to base in time for afternoon tea. At 3.25 that afternoon, Larkin was in the room he and McConnell shared, sitting in front of the stove fire and writing letters. Larkin heard a clatter in the hallway. McConnell was an energetic guy, and it wasn't unusual to hear him coming a mile away. Larkin grinned and turned in his chair to face his friend. McConnell was already halfway through the doorway. He was wearing his full flying kit with his cap pushed back on his head. Hello, boy, McConnell called. Hello, Larkin replied. Back already? Yes. Got there all right. Had a good trip, McConnell said. Well, cheerio. He banged the door shut and went off down the hallway. Larkin turned back to the book he was reading and lit a cigarette. At 3.45, there was a knock on the door. It was Lieutenant Garner Smith looking for McConnell. All the men had plans to go to Lincoln that evening. He's back. He just came into the room a few minutes ago, Larkin told him. Garner Smith left, still in search of McConnell. Larkin, Larkin went down in the mess hall for tea, then got dressed and went to Lincoln to join his friends. 
As Larkin walked into the smoking room of the Albion Hotel, he overheard a group of officers talking in solemn tones. Larkin tried not to eavesdrop on their hushed conversation, but the words he heard made his blood run cold. Tadcaster, McConnell, and crashed. This was too much for Larkin, and he knows his way into the officers' conversation. They told him that just before they had left the base, they had gotten word that David McConnell had indeed crashed his camel while trying to fly the plane through dense fog and fog the Tadcaster. The next morning, Larkin had a long conversation with Lieutenant Garner Smith. <clears throat> excuse me. The other lieutenant. <clears throat> excuse me. The other lieutenant tried to convince Larkin that somehow he'd been mistaken about seeing McConnell at 3:30 the previous afternoon. Larkin, though, was adamant. Larkin later wrote to McConnell's father, trying to explain his strange experience. He told the older McConnell that he and David had known each other for four months, but had only been roommates for about six weeks. While they had had plenty of discussions about political and social topics, not once have they ever discussed anything remotely spiritual, let alone talked about the paranormal. In his letter, Larkin tried to explain his confusion by talking through it. I was at a loss to solve the problem. There was no disputing the fact that he had been killed whilst trying to fly the Tadcaster, presumably at 3.25, as we ascertained afterwards that his watch had stopped at that time. I tried to persuade myself that I had not seen him or spoken to him in his room, but I could not make myself believe otherwise, as I was undeniably awake and his appearance, voice, manner had all been so natural. Told you so. The hunger to know what comes after physical death can't be denied. It's why we read books like the one you're like the one you're holding at this moment. We'll all find out eventually, of course, but for some people, the compulsion to sneak a peek behind the veil is very tempting. For centuries, people have been making arrangements with trusted friends or loved ones. Whoever dies first should come back and try to communicate with the one left behind. And if the stories are to be believed, sometimes it works. The people trying these experiments aren't crackpots. One of these curious people was Lord Henry Brown, a British statesman who lived during the 19th century. He and his college friend Geoffrey Garner were keenly interested in the possibility that a person's soul could survive the death of their body. So intrigued were they that the two friends drew up an agreement <clears throat> that whichever of them died first would appear to the other. They signed this compact in their own blood. They were not playing around with this. When the men graduated from college, Brom entered government service. Garner also, a government, also got a government post and was sent off to India. Over the years, the two men gradually lost touch with each other. It wasn't until many years later when Lord Brom... I think it's Brahem, I'm sorry, when, when Lord Brahem was traveling in Sweden, that he had cause to remember his college friend Gardner. Brahem and his travel companion had stopped at an inn for the night, and Brahem wanted a hot bath after his day's journey. He had a nice relaxing soak and was just about to get out, towel off, and head off to bed when he turned his head to look around the bathroom for a towel. There, sitting on a chair, was his friend Jeffrey Garner. Brahem lunged out of the bath, tripped and passed out. How I got out of the bath, I know not, he wrote later, but on recovering my senses, I found myself sprawling on the floor. The apparition, or whatever it was, that had taken on the likeness of Garner had disappeared. Brougham 
was shaken by the sudden appearance of his college friend he hadn't seen in years, and in his bath, no less. He was further shocked to discover when he returned home to England that Geoffrey Garner had died in India on December 19th, the same day Brown had seen him. Dear Theodosia, To students of history and many Broadway fans, the name of Aaron Burr is synonymous with, with base treachery for the killing of Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. But fans of the musical Hamilton also know Burr as the adoring papa of Theodosia Burr. Theodosia was Aaron Burr's only child, and she and her father were devoted to each other. After the duel between Hamilton and Burr on July 11, 1804, Burr found himself on the outs politically. He, had, he left New York and knocked around for a while and even managed to get himself accused of treason in 1807 for trying to set up an empire in Mexico. He was later acquitted, but went off to Europe in a self-imposed exile. Throughout all of this, Theodosia was Burr's staunchest supporter. She married Joseph Alston, himself a politician, but she never swayed in her devotion to her father. In 1812, Burr returned to New York and immediately wrote to Theodosia to ask her to come see him. Now that he was back home, now that he was back home, sorry about that. Theodosia also, Theodosia, I don't know where I'm at. Theodosia, although she wasn't in the best of health, jumped at the chance to visit her father. Earlier that year, in June, Theodosia had lost her 10-year-old son, Aaron Burr Alston, to malaria. She had been frail since the boy's birth, and it's possible she was suffering from uterine cancer. On December 10, 1812, Joseph Alston had been elected governor of South Carolina. With the duties of his new position, he couldn't take time off to accompany Theodosia to New York. The War of 1812 was in full swing, and travel on the Atlantic was dangerous. But Theodosia was so eager to see her father, who'd been away in Europe for years, that she bought passage on the Patriot and headed north. Soon after the ship's departure from Charleston, South Carolina, though, on December 30th, the Patriot vanished without a trace off the coast of the Carolinas. Rumors swirled around Theodosia's fate. Stories flew that she had killed herself after resisting the advances of the pirate Octavie Chauvet, or that she had written farewell letters to her husband and her father and had put them into a champagne bottle which she threw into the sea before being executed, or that she had been captured and taken to Bermuda as a pirate's mistress. One particularly fanciful tale claimed that she had ended up in Texas on the Gulf Coast and had married an Indian chief. A clue to Theodosia's possible fate came in 1819 with the execution of, of, uh, uh, of Jean de Fargues, de Fargues and Robert Johnston. Robert Johnson. In an article published in the New York Advertiser, the condemned men claimed to have been crew members aboard the ill-fated Patriot. They said they had led a mutiny and had scuttled the ship, killing all on board. But the most solid evidence came to light in 1878 with the publication of an article in the New York Times. A fellow named Benjamin Burdick, described as a hard, rough old salt, had made a deathbed confession at a poorhouse in Michigan. He told the minister's wife that he'd been a sailor on a pirate ship that had overtaken the Patriot. The minister's wife wrote up what Burdick told her and reported the tale to the paper. He said there was one lady on board who was beautiful, appearing intelligent and cultivated, who gave her name as Mrs. Theodosa Alston. When her turn came to walk 
the fatal plank. She asked for a few moments' time, which was gruffly granted her. She then returned to her berth and changed her apparel, appearing on deck in a few moments clad in pure white garments. And with a Bible in her hand, she announced that she was ready. She appeared as calm and composed as if she were at home, and not a tremor crept over her frame or a pallor over, overspread her features as she walked towards her fate. As she was taking the fatal steps, she folded her hand over her bosom and raised her eyes to heaven. She fell and sank without a murmur or sigh. The story lends credence to an oddity that turned up in Nag's head, North Carolina, after the Civil War, a portrait owned by a woman who was quite elderly at the time. Her family, she said, had made a living by looting ships that ran aground in the Outer Banks. In 1813, a vessel had been attacked by pirates and drifted into the family's clutches. They found no one on board, but they did find some valuables that the pirates had overlooked, including a portrait of a dark-haired pretty woman in white. Descendants of Aaron Burr have noted the portrait's resemblance to Theodosia. Theodosia Burr, Austin, Theodosia Burr Austin Spirit, has a wide-ranging territory. She has seen it her plantation house in South Carolina, and her spirit, at least, has finally reached her father's home in New York. One if by land, two if by sea, is a restaurant in, Gre in Greenwich Village that is located in a carriage house once owned and operated by Aaron Burr. Theodosia has been seen floating through the restaurant, wearing a long flowing white dress. In life, she is said to have adored wearing jewelry, especially glittery earrings. Women sitting at the restaurant's bar have reported that someone invisible tends to tug on dangling earrings. Theodosia's ghost, again wearing the same flowing white dress, has also been seen near the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. She appears there most of the time during foul weather or on foggy nights. Her ghost roams these sandy beaches because of one of history's most bizarre coincidences. In 1773, Alexander Hamilton was a passenger on a boat called the Thunderbolt when it was caught in a storm off the Outer Banks. The captain of the boat tried to make for shore, but there was no lighthouse to guide him. He then tried to ride out the storm off of Cape Hatteras, but high waves pummeled the boat. The rocking of the ship spilled glowing coals out of the stove onto the wooden floor of the galley and started a fire that nearly spelled disaster for the Thunderbolt. Luckily, the fire was contained, and when the gale winds died down, the ship limped into port. After that harrowing experience, Hamilton swore that someday he'd make sure a lighthouse was built on Cape Hatteras. After the Revolutionary War, Hamilton was appointed Secretary of the Treasury. Here was his chance to make good on his promise of a decade before. He twisted arms to get a congressional appropriation for the lighthouse at Cape Hatteras. One of the arms he twisted was that of Aaron Burr. Burr was irked at Hamilton's manipulations and his irritation. I'm sorry. Burr was, was irked at Hamilton's manipulations and his irritation only fanned the flames of the feud between the two men. Decades later, the Patriots' gruesome end came not far from the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the same beacon built by Theodosia's father's bitter rival. Unfortunately for Theodosia, the lighthouse did nothing to save her, but it could have. There's a theory that the Patriot was not attacked at sea, but rather lured to shore by pirates working on land, who shone a light at Nang's head to confuse the Patriot's captain. If the captain had followed the beacon at Cape Hatteras instead, he wouldn't have been taken in by the false light. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have half the ghost stories we do if it weren't for the history behind them. Last wishes.
Jim Curran knew he was dying. The old man was nearing the end of his life, his early life, and he had made his peace. He lived in the small town of Holyrood on Canada's Atlantic seaboard, and he loved the land he made his home. When I go, Curran told his son-in-law, James Butler, I want to be buried in the new cemetery on the south side of the village. And if you don't bury me there, I'll haunt you. You won't have a moment's peace. The headstrong old man passed away just before Christmas. His funeral was to be officiated by Father Walsh. As Butler made the final arrangements, he mentioned to Father Walsh that Curran's last wishes had included a burial in the new cemetery. I'm afraid that's not possible, the priest explained. Last wishes are no. I can't in good conscience bury your father-in-law there. It hasn't yet been consecrated. We'll bury Mr. Curran in the Northside Cemetery. If he does come back to haunt anyone, let it be me. I'm the one responsible. Butler agreed. He wanted to honor Curran's last wishes, but he certainly didn't want his loved one buried in unconcentrated ground either. As long as he haunts you and not me, I'm fine with that, Butler said. The funeral was held on a snowy afternoon just after Christmas. Jim Curran was laid to rest in the property, in the properly concentrated north side of North Side Cemetery. Family and friends drifted away to mourn in private, and Father Walsh made and his driver Harry headed for home. The snow that had started to fall during the graveside service got worse, and soon Harry found the road blocked. He took what he thought was a shortcut across the frozen pond, but he was soon hopelessly lost. Three hours passed before Harry saw any familiar landmarks. Priest and driver made it home safely, but they were late, cold and hungry by the time they got there. Harry, who was superstitious, swore that Jim Curran's ghost had, had led them astray. All that week, as Father Walsh made his rounds in the parish, he heard members of his congregation muttering that Jim Curran should have been buried in the new Southside Cemetery after all. The next Sunday, Father Walsh took to the pulpit to explain the reasons for his decision. The parishioners might have been soothed by the sermon. But Jim Curran's ghost still wasn't convinced. Late that night, Father Walsh heard a knock at his front door. He went to answer it, but there was no one on the porch. Before he could close the door, he heard footsteps come into the house, cross the floor, and go up the stairs to a bedroom on the second floor. The next day, Father Walsh had a visitor, a friend of his, who was a priest in a nearby town. Without any prompting, Father O'Donnell asked about the visitor of the previous night. Father Walsh denied that any visitor had showed up, but Father O'Donnell just lifted an eyebrow, daring Father Walsh to tell the truth. Three weird occurrences in just over a week were enough to convince Father Walsh. He consecrated the Southside Cemetery immediately. The first burial there, of course, was a reburial. Jim's Curran, Jim Curran's grave was opened, and his body was moved to the new cemetery. Neither Father Walsh nor anyone else ever heard from Jim Curran's ghost again. Curran was finally able to rest in peace. The York Museum Ghost The town of York, England is incredibly ancient by American standards. Many cultures have put their stamp on it. <clears throat> Romans, Vikings, Saxons, Celts, Normans, all putting a facet on this jewel of the north. And relics of all these bygone people who lived and died in York are housed in the York Museum. In 1953, a haunting began at the museum that involved a book with a blue cover. It was just an ordinary book, but for one returning spirit, it seemed to hold a great importance. It started out on a Sunday evening in September 1953. There was a meeting going on at the museum. 
so the caretaker, Mr. George Jonas, was waiting for it to be over so he could lock up the building. Jonas and his wife were downstairs. As people filed out, Jonas made a cup of tea before going upstairs for a final sweep of the building. But, Mrs. Jonas said, are you sure everyone's gone? She heard footsteps above them, and listening, Mr. Jones did too. It's probably the curator. I'll go up and tell him I'll be turning the lights off soon, Jonas said. He went up the stairs, heading for the curator's office. There was an elderly stranger in the office instead. He was in the far corner of the room, bent over as if looking for something. As Jonas came into the office, the stranger stood up, turned around, and walked past Jonas out of the office. Pardon me, sir, but are you looking for someone? Jonas asked. The stranger, who was dressed in an old-fashioned frock coat and trousers, ignored him. The old fellow went straight across the hall through the open door to the library. Jonas followed him, turning on the lights as he came into the room, behind the odd stranger. I must find it. I must find it, the old gentleman muttered to himself. He crossed the library to a bookshelf and ran his finger down the spines of the books. By this time, Jonas was feeling a bit miffed at being so roundly ignored. But he thought that perhaps the old fellow was hard of hearing or even stone deaf. Jonas walked close to the old man. If you want to see the curator, Mr. Wilmot, I'll be glad to escort you to his house. As Jonas spoke, he reached out to touch the gentleman's shoulder to get his attention. Just before Jonas's fingers brushed the tweed of the old fellow's jacket, the man vanished. Jonas stood completely still for a few moments while his mind tried to process the old man's sudden disappearance. His gaze wandered to the floor. There was a book with a blue cover lying there. It had fallen from the old gentleman's hands as he vanished. Idly, Jonas noticed the title, Antiquities and Curiosities of the Church. Then his, man, then his mind caught up with the situation. He raced down the stairs and bundled his wife out the door. Time to go. Let's go. Now. We need to go. The next morning, Jonas went to work at the museum as usual. His first stop was the library. The blue book was still lying on the floor where the ghost had dropped it. Jonas shook his head, so he hadn't imagined it after all. He told the museum's curator the odd story. Four Sundays later, Mr. Jonas was again at the museum, and the ghost returned. The spirit looked just as solid as before. Jonas later swore he looked like a very real person, but this time the old man in embroidery dress went from the office across the hall to the library and walked through the locked door to get there. This was just weird enough that Mr. Jonas decided to bring someone else with him when he worked his Sunday hours. On the fourth Sunday after that, Jonas and a friend walked into the library and heard the quiet shuffling of someone turning the pages of a book. A flash of blue caught their eyes, and a book dropped to the floor as they watched. It was the same book the old man had pulled off the shelf the first time Jonas had encountered him. Enough was enough. The ghost was following a pattern of appearing every fourth Sunday. So on the fourth Sunday in December, a group of six men gathered with Mr. Jonas in the library of the New York Museum. Jonas had gone to his doctor to make sure he wasn't just imagining things and had invited the doctor to come to the library to see the manifestation for himself. Along with Jonas and his doctor were a lawyer and a reporter from the Yorkshire Evening Press. Mr. James Jonas, the caretaker's brother, was also there, mostly because he thought his brother's story was complete nonsense. George Jonas took the blue book off the shelf to show it to everyone. As it turned out, the book had a business card pasted inside the front cover. Antiquities and Curiosities of the Church had once belonged to Alderman Edward Wooler. 
a lawyer who collected the antiques. The alderman had collapsed and died at a meeting nearly 30 years before. The old gentleman had always arrived around 7.40 p.m. Everyone in the room sat tensely watching the clock as the minutes ticked past. At exactly 7.42, the slim blue book slowly slid to the edge of the bookshelf as if drawn out by an invisible hand. It gently dropped from the shelf onto the floor, still standing upright. Everyone in the library was shocked, except for George Jonas. He was just relieved not to have been the only witness this time. Everyone else agreed that yes, without a doubt, there was something supernatural going on in the library every fourth Sunday. And now there was a possible identity for the ghost, Alderman Wooler. But not everyone welcomed the idea of a ghost at the library. Mr. Wilmot, who had held the post of curator for the past four years, was open to the idea of investigating the phenomenon further. After all, the apparition, whoever he was, had now been experienced by nine people. However, the museum was overseen by the Yorkshire Philosophical Society, and they roundly poo-pooed the very thought of the paranormal. The society's excuse me, <clears throat> the society's chairman groused, "It is too silly for words. There would be no investigation. I would not let the subject be brought before the council of the society." I would not waste my time on such tripe. Wilmot was so incensed at the chairman's dismissive attitude that he handed in his resignation. In the meantime, Jonas and his associates went ahead with the investigation. Wilmot had supported. Jonas was ill on the fourth Sunday in January, so he wasn't able to go stud that evening. But on the next fourth Sunday, February 5th, 1954, 12 men sat quietly in the museum's library. George Jonas was feeling much better, and he was joined by several professionals, including members of the Society for Cyclical Research. The men locked the door of the library to make sure they could conduct their investigation undisturbed. They got to the museum in plenty of time. They began their session at 7.15, 25 minutes before the ghost's usual arrival time at 7.40. Unfortunately, the hunting, the hunting seemed to have run its course. Whether Jonas's absence in January knocked the ghost off his schedule, or the spirit had finally been satisfied with pulling the book off the shelf several times, we'll never know. But nothing happened in February, save for a small wandering cold spot. And on March 7th, the next Sunday in the cycle, nothing happened. The spirit was gone, but the snark remained. During those weeks of waiting for the ghost to show up, some of the more open-minded members of the Yorkshire Philosophical Society started asking questions about Mr. Wilmot's resignation. A special meeting was held to inquire into the circumstances. There were, it was reported later, some bitter attacks and some strong defense. Who knew, who knew philosophers could get so worked up? The result of the meeting was that the members of the society voted overwhelmingly to ask Wilmot to stay on as the museum's curator. Wilmot had been about to leave for another position, but he agreed to stay. Politics being what they are, this was followed by a flurry of other resignations. At its annual meeting two months later, the Yorkshire Philosophical Society had a completely new 12-member council. There was one person who was sad to see the museum ghost go. Who, there was one per, I'm sorry. There was one person who was sad to see the museum ghost go. Alderman Wooler's grandson heard of the ghost and realized the description of the wandering gentleman fit his grandfather exactly. He was thrilled to have a ghost in the family. After the experience of December 1953, the ghost has never been seen again. But there are people who say that if you're in the new, if you're in the York Museum, 
library doing research or simply reading a book, you may notice that the room seems unnaturally cold. Maybe the old fellow was still lurking in the library. Cool. Let me check something here. I'm looking at comments. Okay. All right. Just checking some comments. In fact, I'm going to enlarge this a little bit. Sorry about that. Because I'm a blind bat. And I'm sitting further back, and I want to be able to see your comments when they come in. Okay? So let me do this a little bit. Okay, we'll continue. The Sea Captain's Ghost. The coast of Donegal, Ireland is, is one of the, see, the, the coast of Donegal, Ireland is one of the most picturesque places in the country. Small islands off the coast provide a breakwater, some small protection from the angry storm-lashed waters of the Atlantic. The islands of here we go. The islands of Ishinigola and Inisman form a perfect natural harbor for passing ships to seek refuge in a storm. Around Christmas one year, in the early part of the 20th century, a small sailing ship came into the harbor to resupply. The ship had been battling her way through a prolonged storm and supplies were running low. The captain and two of his men rowed to the harbor from the ship. They barely made the trip safely. Even with the protection of the islands, the waters of the harbor were a seething, boiling cauldron of foam, and it was evening by the time they landed. The islanders guided the small boat safely to shore and welcomed the three men. The captain loaded the skiff with supplies and was determined to make it back to his ship that night. The captain was a frequent visitor to the island and was well-liked. The islanders begged him to stay until the, flurry, until the fury of the storm slackened, but the captain was adamant. He and, two, he and his two companions pushed off into the darkness. The next morning, the fears of the islanders had come true. In the darkness of the storm, the unfamiliar harbor, and the darkness of the storm, the unfamiliar harbor, and the storm-wracked waters had bested the small skiff. A man walking the beach, looking for salvageable items from wrecks, found the small boat. It had been smashed by smashed to splinters by the pounding waves. Near it was the battered, broken body of the captain. The bodies of the other two sailors were never found. The tragedy hit the islanders hard. The island was home to just a handful of people who kept horses and camels grazing on the top to forage there. The islanders were devastated that despite their best efforts to convince them to stay, the captain and his companions had taken their chances on the dangerous waters, and now they were gone. The islanders felt the loss as though it had been family members who drowned. After the tragedy, the settlers drew together for companionship. Soon afterwards, they began to spend their evenings together in one house, in an effort to keep the loneliness at bay. One evening, as they sat around the fire chatting, they heard footsteps approaching the door. The walkway leading to the door was made of fine, soft sand, yet they, could, yet they still heard footsteps, as if someone was coming towards the house on hard-packed earth. Everyone on the island was there in the house, so they figured it might be a stranger. They all looked eagerly towards the door, ready to welcome the traveler to the fireside. The door swung open, and there stood a tall, broad-shouldered man, the captain who had been buried just a few days previously. Every person in the room recognized him. A woman sitting in a corner said, in Irish, Oh God, there's the captain. One of the men found his voice and greeted the captain in his native Irish speech, saying, Come in. But the figure in the doorway simply stepped back and disappeared. The islanders rushed out into the night, but they didn't find anyone near the house. The captain had vanished and into the dark winter night. The Frozen Lovers 
A few days before Christmas, 1850, a small boat dropped anchor off, off Jameson's Point near Rockland, Maine. The captain was not on board. Rumor had it that he had gone ashore for a drink, and not his first, and that the schooner's owners had fired him for his hard-drinking ways. Whatever the reason, the boat was lacking a captain. The first mate, believing strongly in the old adage, when the cat's away, the mice will play, had recently proposed to a beautiful young woman. With the captain gone, the first mate saw no reason not to enjoy the company of his bride-to-be. He invited her to stay in his cabin on the schooner for a few days. Only the mate, his young lady, and one deckhand were aboard the boat on December 22nd, when a vicious storm whipped up and snapped the boat's anchor cable. With only two men to guide the schooner, it soon ran aground on the rocky shore near Owl's Head. The boulders held the boat in place. So luckily it didn't sink, but it did fill with seawater. The three people aboard huddled for warmth on the deck. Waves crashed over the deck, drenching the three in freezing spray. Their clothes began to grow stiff with ice. The first mate took charge. His plan was for all three of them to roll up together in a wool blanket and lie down next to the stern rail, as far out of the wind as that spray as possible. The mate knew they couldn't avoid the spray altogether, but he hoped it would freeze on the blanket and form a protective shell of ice around them. His plan worked, but it worked too well. The waves continued to pummel the boat all night, and the spray froze in ice more quickly than the mate had anticipated. The ice built into a suffocating layer several inches thick. By the time the sky grew gray with the dawn, the first mate and his fiancée were unconscious. The deckhand mourned his companions, but was glad to find himself alive at the end of that chilling night. He used a small knife to chip away the ice, then smashed his way free with hands that bled from the shards of icy cold. He staggered to his feet and saw that the tide had gone out. A narrow rocky bridge now connected the boulders to the shore. The winds of the storm still blew, but at least the deckhand could stumble towards the dry land in salvation. He headed for the lighthouse at Alt's head. Even through the battering storm, the light still shone. He fixed, his, he fixed his mind on the light and headed for it, crawling the last fifty yards on bloodied hands and knees. He reached the lighthouse, and the keeper hurried him into the warmth of the house's kitchen. Shivering under a blanket, his hands wrapped tightly around a mug of hot soup. The deckhand stammered out <clears throat> his amazing story of survival. The lighthouse keeper was reluctant to go out in the storm to retrieve the corpses, but he organized a rescue party just in case. The men found the pair curled in a tight embrace and frozen in a solid block of ice. The rescuers used chisels and picks to free the storm's victims. Everyone was sure the two were dead, but even so, they were rushed to a home near the lighthouse. In an attempt to revive them, they were stripped and placed in cold, in cold, cold water baths. Rescuers gently massaged the cold limbs, searching for the faintest signs of life. In about two hours, the woman's eyes fluttered open, and she struggled back to consciousness. An hour after that, the first mate stirred too. The two, snatched from death's icy grip, took several months to recover. But in June, the first mate and his radiant bride stood together in front of a preacher and promised to love each other till death do us part. Ghost Cat The paranormal writer Jeff Ballinger is a tireless collector of weird tales. In his book, Our Haunted Lives, True, Te True Life Ghost Encounters, he shares some of these wonderful stories. Susie Lehman had a beloved cat affectionately named Fat Kitty, 
Fat Kitty was a beloved member of the family and stayed devoted to them even after death. Susie's son was born prematurely, and the spirit of Fat Kitty seemed to watch over the tiny human. Susie would see glimpses. Excuse me for a second. Okay. Susie would see glimpses of a shadow cat under her son's bassinet. She also noticed that the bedspread on the, on the foot of her bed, which was the corner of the bed closest to the bassinet, was constantly mussed, as if a cat had been sitting on it, keeping watch. Fat Kitty had one litter, and Susie had kept two of the kittens. One named Calico spent her life utterly fascinated by Christmas trees and the decorations that adorned them. One afternoon, after she lost Calico, Susie was in the house by herself. She happened to walk through the living room and gave the Christmas tree a looking over, making sure it was just the way she wanted it. Just then, one of the ornaments at the bottom of the tree started moving. That's what Calico always loved to do. She, she loved to run by and slap an ornament, or lay up underneath it and slap it. I don't know what made me do this, but I looked at that ornament and I said, Calico, just leave the tree alone, and it stopped immediately. My husband saw it do the same thing. It was always one particular ornament and one particular part of the tree that she used to play with. Susie smiled knowing that Calico was still enjoying her shiny swinging toy. Okay, that's going to do it for today. And we'll continue next Saturday, next Sunday, which is Christmas Day. We will continue with this book, with the book. I hope you enjoyed hearing, and I, I, I hope you enjoyed, you know, just kind of relaxing and listening as I read. Do this here. Okay. Yeah, and I hope you enjoyed listening to me as I read. I, I really like reading you guys. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. Let me move this. My eyes are all bleary now, so I'm trying to see what the hell I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> there we go. My eyes get really bleary, you know, because I'm trying to read. I got the bright lights on and all that. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today. And tomorrow, Mark Leslie is going to be with us to tell us some really cool ghost stories about haunted antiques and things like that. So he's going to be with us tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, the usual time. So I want to thank all of you for coming, and I really appreciate it. And I will see you all tomorrow. Have a great evening.